So last week we did a lot of stuff, and um, last week was we teach it because it's really fun to teach. You know, typical. That was kind of our thing from the beginning. Is typical Christ in the Old Testament classes is David is Jesus, Moses is Jesus, you know, Adam is Jesus. Kind of simple, which is cool. Those are obviously very foundational, um, but we try to go towards the more broad and detailed picture of. Christ fulfilling the Torah, the Old Testament, um, first five books. And one thing, you know, I realized we skipped was knowing the flood, which you think is pretty important, but almost too easy to, to teach. So, you know, but I mean, that's important too, is, you know, Christ being the Noah type that, I mean, that's so obvious that through the wooden instrument, he brought salvation to not only uh, humans, but animals. I'm not saying Christ brought salvation to animals, but it's a a uh, soul and creation salvation. It's not just Noah saved people. It's, uh, creation was preserved through Noah. And the same thing with Christ bringing the new creation, not just dying to take us to heaven. It's Christ uh, cross accomplished the new creation. So that was an important point too. But that stuff last week, and some of this stuff this week too, this is not like mainstream stuff. And it's probably pretty obvious that this is not mainstream ideas. Um, it's not, that doesn't mean it's unimportant or that it's not true. And it's just not mainstream to us. It used to be mainstream, but a lot of this has been lost over time um, or downplayed or neglected. And it's, it's fun because it's kind of on the edge of difficulty. Uh, I mean, this is kind of getting out there. If you can get and grasp the stuff we did last week and the stuff we're doing tonight, I mean, man, you can uh, hang with the best of them. I mean, you are right on the edge of understanding the Bible as a scope. It's really, really cool. This, some of these things we'll talk about also last week and this week are the final big pieces put into place that help people understand their Bible as a whole, I think. Uh, I certainly think so. Yeah, yeah, we're trying to look at a big picture and we chose to not spend as much time on the flood perhaps <laughs> because... You know, it's more well-known, but certainly there's pictures of that. You know, Peter goes back and Mm -hmm. mentions the flood. Jesus mentions the flood, Uh, you know, as a judgment of God. The the flood and Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, they they come up often as pictures of judgment. Certainly the earth is different after the flood than before. The the pre-flood world and the post-flood world are different. Human lifespans drop off dramatically after the flood it seems you know there's a lot of changes that occur there and the picture of um, you know of the ark and the safety and safety through water but it's going to be fire next time not water so there's a lot um, that we could do with the flood but I think a lot of that's already been done pretty well so we chose not to spend as much time yeah. on that but certainly you can see salvation um, and and Jesus in in Noah and in the, the whole concept of judgment and the flood. But yeah, I've had this picture up here for three weeks, I realize now, and I've yet to explain okay. it. I'm not going to explain it yet either. I'm going to hold that to the end. <laughs> uh, but it's a really, really cool picture once you understand what's going on, like all icons are. Uh, but Noah is important for the story transitioning to Abraham because God basically hits this reset button with the world and the fallenness of the world. So if anyone ever... If anyone ever tells you, why doesn't God just get rid of all the evil in the world? Uh, say he did, and it didn't work. I mean, he all but one righteous man, and then it all came back again, uh, even worse than it was before. So he hits the reset button, 
And what happens in Genesis 9 is this, God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful, multiply, uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. What's that from? The Eden. That's the Edenic mandate. So this is a new Eden. We have Abraham, I mean, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> all types of each other. Noah as the new type of Adam, uh, passing through the waters of the new creation with all these animals. He's Adam. All the, the sp- splitting of the waters in Genesis 1, the creation of animals and humans, it's Adam. And it says, and you, and this is saying it again a few verses later, it's actually plural, is what that means, and y'all, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So it's the same thing again. So twice after the flood, he gives the Edenic command again. He wants to restart Eden. That's really important for understanding not only the Old Testament, but the fall narrative as a whole is God's Eden plan is not off track. Well, it's off track, but he hasn't given up on it. It's certainly way off track than that was supposed to go. He still wants to have humans be fruitful, multiply, spread out, and cover the face of the earth to bring the garden that's within Eden to the rest of the world. That's God's plan all along. And even though humans have turned against him, even though the sons of God have rebelled against him, um, even though literally divine beings have rebelled against him, he still isn't giving up on the plan. Even though he reset humanity and started again through Noah and eight others, right? He isn't giving up on this Eden plan. So what happens is Noah gets off the ark. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Yes, he's a new Adam, thank goodness. And he planted a vineyard. Good, it's literally a new Eden over again. He's finally getting the point. Be fruitful and multiply. So he's got the be fruitful part. Uh, He drank the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So we have Eden again. (laughs) So again, the fruit of the vine or the fruit of the tree in Eden caused Adam to fall. But this time it's Noah because he's the second Adam. It's the same story over and over again. God's trying to start this Eden plan, but apparently we can't as humans even make it out of Eden. And this is Noah, who is the only righteous man on the planet. So, and there's a story that comes with this uh, where his sons and something weird happens with his sons and... Uh, there's some interesting stuff there, but not to be focused on. And then we have, that's Genesis 9, and then we have Genesis 10. Now, Genesis 10 is really, really, really boring. It's a list of 70 just places, or really people that become nations, nation states. Just a list of people. Call, we'll probably call it shorthand the table of nations. Um, so if you, if you go to Genesis 10, you'll see that it's just a wall of texts that usually we skim over. And in this case... It doesn't matter a whole lot if you skim over it, as long as you know the number of them is 70, right? There's a few important names in there, Egypt and Canaan and Tarshish, uh, because Tarshish at this point, this will be important for later, Tarshish at this point is the furthest western point you can get to, Tarshish. So if you know the Jonah story, God tells him, go to Nineveh, which is as far east as you can go in the Assyrian Empire, and, Noah, and uh, Jonah tries to go to Tarshish, which is as far western in the world as recently been discovered at his time. So he tries to literally go as far away as humanly possible. Now, that'll be important for later. But it's this wall of text, just all these nations. And then you get chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one, uh, had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. 
So they said, let's rebel so that we don't have to fulfill the Edenic command. <laughs> God said, be fruitful, multiply, cover the face of the earth. And they say, I know what we should do. We should get together. We should build a tower so that we're not dispersed over the face of the earth, which is exactly the Edenic plan. Now this is, most scholars would agree, the tower they're talking about is a ziggurat. This is a Babel, uh, obviously a portrayal of a Babylonian ziggurat. Very, very, very common. As common as like temples were. This is really a version of their temple. Kind of a pyramid looking shape where you could climb up to the top. And contrary to common belief, it is not trying to reach the heavens. It's actually exactly the opposite. It is a place for the gods to come down and rest on. I guess you build it closer so it's a little bit easier for the god, but it's a place to build up and have the god come down. So God tells them, he's working with all of humans at this point, tells them to spread out, be fruitful, multiply, cover the face of the earth. They gather up and try to get God to come down where they want him to come down. So they try to put God in a box. They try to tame God. So come down on our tower. And what's really funny is it says uh, in verse 7, Come, let us go down there and confuse your language. So God goes, fine, I'll come down. So God does come down on their tower. He goes, sure, I'll come down and check it out. Oh, great tower you've got here. And this isn't, the point isn't just God being a building inspector. The point is he comes down and sees, ah, I see that you have completely ignored the Edenic command that I have given you to obey. And so he confuses their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. The Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. So he forced the Edenic command upon them. Fine, you don't want to spread out. I'm going to make you spread out. So forces them to spread out over the face of the earth. They left off uh, building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, which is kind of, I don't know why we translate it Babel. It is the word for Babylon. That's Babylon. That's really important. And this is kind of a side uh, thing, but that's really important because the, the narrative of Genesis 1 through 12 is like a microcosm for the whole Old Testament. All of it's shrunk down into this 1 through 12 narrative with the call of Abraham. Because you have Israel in the promised land, Adam and Eden, who are disobedient and then exiled out of the promised land. Israel's exiled out. Adam's exiled out to the east, just like Israel is. And then the story progresses into chaos until they find themselves sitting in Babylon. And how the Old Testament leaves off is Israel is kind of back from Babylon, but kind of not. They're still waiting on a Messiah to bring them really back from exile. And the way that chapter 11 of Genesis leaves off is we're in Babylon, under the Tower of Babel, uh, the Tower of Babylon. And then the next passage, the next chapter is the call of Abraham. What you'll notice in that table of nations is something really, really, really important. There's someone missing, Israel, <laughs> right? There is no Israel really important. Israel's not a thing yet. They, they don't exist yet. Uh, <clears throat> yet Noah is not Israel. Israel won't be until Jacob has his name changed to Israel. Israel doesn't exist yet. And so we have this beautiful ziggurat. All right, so this God says, come let us, by the way, come let us build a tower. And this is God says, let us go down to the ziggurat. It seems to be divine counsel language again. God saying to people on this divine, beings on this divine council, let's do this together. Let's go down and, and check this out. And the next passage in 12.1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great that you may be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families or nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now the problem with all this is he's not really explaining what's going on. He kind of just expects you to be really, really good at reading narrative. Now the problem with, with Abraham is what? Well, I guess the problem with Sarah is what? <laughs> She's barren, which ends up being perfect because in later texts we'll offer commentary on this. Ten is this gathering of the whole, well, ten is the, the table of all these nations. Eleven is Babel, the gathering of all these nations, and then the scattering of all the nations. And twelve is the call of Abraham, but his wife's barren. It's, it's, it's a funny story almost, but sad. I mean, he has no children and no, not a square inch of land to his name. So God says, yes, perfect. <laughs> he's not going to do what Babel did. He's not going to, you know, do what the sons of God did in Genesis 6. Yes, no land, no kids. Perfect. Which is really interesting because the next story in 13, so he calls Abraham in 12, and then in chapter 13, they go down to Egypt. And what happens down in Egypt is Sarah is taken into the harem of Pharaoh. So thank God that she's barren, lest anyone think that the seed will be restarted through someone like Pharaoh. It's actually this cool polarizing irony that if you were to pick a hero to save humanity, people in that day would pick someone like Pharaoh, who interestingly was thought to be the son of the gods by Egyptians. He was divine, Pharaoh. And so you have another Christ as Abraham situation where the very person that everyone would have picked to be the son of God wasn't picked to be chosen by God. Abraham was picked. This guy with not a square inch of land and not, not a single child to his name is picked to inherit the promised land and his descendants will be like the stars of heaven to break both those curses that seem to be on him. And so when Christ shows up, it's kind of the same situation where in a world where you would pick a Pilate or a Caesar or a Herod, the person that's actually chosen to be the Savior is Christ, this guy from Nazareth, right? a, a rabbi, and so someone seemingly on the surface very insignificant, maybe. So it's a very Abraham uh, situation when Christ shows up. This shows Abraham's journeys right here. You can see the Ur, Ur where Abram's from, travels up and then down to the Promised Land, and God brings him on a tour of his future home. Beautiful image for uh, faith in the future. He brings them down to the promised land and then down to Egypt. So he gets them to scope out the land that he one day is going to uh, be in charge of. Now, here's where it gets tricky. And this is this should be easier than last week. Because if you remember the Genesis 6, 1-4 stuff, the sons of God leaving heaven, the daughters of man. For stuff like that, you kind of have to trust extra biblical stuff. Extra our biblical stuff. Of course, Enoch is in some Bibles, but... You have to kind of see the ancient Near Eastern context of Genesis and kind of just trust what I'm saying about, yeah, the Babylonians really did think this about the Apkalu and the leaving. They had the same story, and I assume you're kind of, okay, well, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, and trusting that. That's a little bit harder to teach because I have to get you to trust the literature and stuff like that. But this one's hard in the sense of we're looking at Genesis 10, 11, and 12, but it's not really explained very thoroughly in 10, 11, 12. You get the story, and like any good story in the Hebrew Bible, it has, I think John called it the other day, intentional ambiguity, which I love that phrase now. 
It's intentionally ambiguous. You're supposed to, like Sterling, you always do, you're supposed to read the story and then ask a billion questions about it that aren't going to be answered yet. So that when the answer does come, maybe later in the Torah, maybe in the prophets, or maybe even in the Gospels or the New Testament, you go, finally, there's the answer to the question I was asking all along. Or, in the way the Hebrew Bibles learned through generationally passed down, um, you, you finally get an answer to a question your great-grandpa was asking. So maybe people reading Genesis way back when it was written were reading, well, what is the purpose of this 10 through 12 story? But the hard part of it is they don't really get the explanation or the commentary of 10 through 12 until Deuteronomy. Okay. Now that is kind of a whole scope of, that's kind of a whole theology of what Deuteronomy is. Its name literally means the second telling. It's a, many ways, a second telling of commands that God had given. So it seems you, you know, you take Leviticus, and then God thought Leviticus was so interesting, he puts second Leviticus at the end of the Torah to make sure, which is so funny, the most boring book in the Bible he has basically in there twice. But there's a lot of stuff in Deuteronomy that is commentary on earlier parts of the Torah. So I have this little graph. So we have the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Old Testament. And then Deuteronomy, kind of the, the capstone on the end of the Torah, a lot of it is either a second telling or a commentary or reflection on these stories we've seen that maybe we wouldn't have picked up on the first time or at all had Moses not told us in Deuteronomy. So, you know, Deuteronomy 8 is assuming you've read the wilderness stories of Numbers. So you read through Numbers, one of my favorite Old Testament books, all the narrative portions of Israel in the wilderness, and you think about it and you reflect on it, and then Deuteronomy 8 is kind of the summary of those stories, all the things Israel should have learned when they were in the wilderness. And Moses is giving this speech reminding Israel of what they went through in the wilderness, all the things they should have learned, um, of what it takes to be the Son of God. Now, that's important because later Christ will quote that to Satan, right? When he says, it is written... Uh, when, he's, when he's being tested as the Son of God, as Israel in the wilderness, don't let me lose you. As Jesus, the type of Israel, who is the Son of God in the wilderness, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, is being tested by Satan. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8, which is Moses' summary reflection on Numbers, which is Israel being tested. Does that make sense? So that's kind of how Deuteronomy works. Now I say that because in Deuteronomy 32... Uh, it, he, Moses is giving this speech in this recap of what we've seen so far in the Torah, and he's going back and really elaborating what happened in 10, 11, and 12. So, I'll go to Deuteronomy 32, and this is the portion we'll really focus on, but you can kind of see the themes from 10, 11, 12 coming up over and over again. So I'll start in 32, 5. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you? So he's talking about creation. Who made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father. He will show you your elders and they will tell you. What's he talking about? Verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. Now, most high. If you ever see most high God, that's not just like another name of God on the list of names of God that we don't know why they use what. There are many names of the Lord 
the Lord being one of them as opposed to God. And they kind of all are used in different ways, especially in the Psalms. Don't, don't let me confuse you with that. When you see the Most High or the Most High God or God Most High, that is a divine counsel reference, right? Elohim. Elohim is a very generic term for gods. And he's saying, of the divine counsel of the sons of God, the presiding Elohim over those is the Most High God. Remember the demon when Christ crosses Galilee to the Decapolis, the evil territory, essentially. He says, what do you have to do with the Son of the Most High God? Or when you're... when there, a lot of times it's used of Gentiles, Nebuchadnezzar, um, when they're interacting with Israelites and they come to believe in the God of Israel. It's not, and don't, this might bother you a little bit, but it's not necessarily that you just become monotheist overnight. It's that they still maybe believe in their gods, but they say, your God is the most high God. Now I believe that the God of Israel is the most high God of all these divine counsel sons of God, lower created, you know, uh, lowercase g gods, Elohim, right? And so he says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance. When? When when, did that happen? We didn't read that in the Torah. And Moses is saying, no, you did. When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders or territories of the people according to the number of the sons of God. And you kind of read that going, when when did that happen? But that's Moses offering commentary on what we should have seen in Genesis 10, 11, 12. 10 is this list of nations and 11 is this scattering of languages, but it's not really about languages. Right? He's not just saying, why do people on all the earth speak different languages? Oh, well, Genesis has an answer because God made them speak different languages. Okay, in a sense that's true, but the point of that is a lot deeper than that Moses is saying. He's saying what's happening is that mankind was divided, God fixed the borders of the people and assigned to them accordingly the number of the sons of God. Now, how many nations were in the table of nations in Genesis 10? 70. So how many sons of God are there? Evidently, 70. Pretty interesting. Now, that's actually really cool. This is just a fun fact. But later in the first century, a long time after this, when the Sanhedrin wants to model themselves after this divine council, how many people are in the Sanhedrin? 70. They see Israel as a reflection of the divine council of the Lord. We are a physical reflection of the spiritual reality that the world is governed by the Lord and his 70 lesser spiritual beings, whether they be cherubim, seraphim, what have you. So they're kind of a reflection of that. So that's the Sanhedrin, but, but you remember Jesus sent out 70 mm-hmm. or 72. You may remember that the Septuagint, <laughs> before the Sanhedrin, actually was 70 Jewish scholars to translate into Greek the Old Testament. Yeah. And some of yours may say... Um, in, in verse 8, according to the sons of Israel, that's a mm-hmm. uh, Masoretic text, mm-hmm. which really comes late. from a later time. Um, the, the, some of the Jews that did the Masoretic text, which is from several centuries mm-hmm. after Jesus, um, <laughs> they didn't have access to some of, you know, certainly with the Qumran community and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so when we go and yeah. we read that, we see really, it, you know, what the Septuagint said, mm-hmm. which is the Bible Jesus used. I mean, if you can yeah. say that. Um, it's Does your say the of, of God. Does your say Israel? With a footnote. Yeah, that footnote has some, it. Some, you know, the, 
that that's the Masoretic text, Dead Sea Scrolls and Septuagint say sons of God. Yeah, my ESV, ESV is uses Masoretic usually, and even they have sons of God. Time? And they put in a footnote, they're like, yeah, it's, it's sons of God. Well, it is. <laughs> they admit that the Masoretic has sons of God, but Septuagint, Dead Sea Scrolls disagree, but yeah. Another way. You yeah, yeah. And well, the thing of, according to the sons of Israel, how? Israel's not a thing yet. How has mankind been divided according to the number of the sons of Israel in Genesis 11? If Israel's not in existence yet, that makes no sense, you know? So you have a, a literary problem with that, too. Um, so, eight. Yeah, so according to the number of the sons of God in eight. But, so that's, that would be, if you were to map that onto Genesis, that would be chapter 10, 11. So we read 10, 11. What's going on in 10, 11? That mankind was dispersed and then assigned inheritance according to the number of the sons of God. And then chapter 12 commentary would be here in 32.9. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, whose name will be changed to Israel, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him and no foreign God was with him. Those are for the other nations. But with my people, no foreign God, they're called to worship me alone. He made him ride on the high places of the land. He ate the produce of the field. He suckled him with honey out of the rock. Kind of going through the story of Israel. And then 15, Jerusalem, another name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. He forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred into jealousy with strange gods with strange God. So why is God upset at Israel later and sends them to exile that Moses is looking in the future for? Because they worship strange gods, gods that were not allotted to, the, to Israel. Well, look at that in Deuteronomy 4 as well. With abominations, they provoke, provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, but Shadim, Hebrew, that were no gods. To gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So keep going, talking about idols and how they've been provoked to jealousy. But uh, that demon, I, I pause on that word demon because demon to us is very charged by Greek Hellenistic culture. Daemon is <laughs> not in the sense that they're, Shadim is a territorial being, uh, a divine council member, essentially, uh, to, to Hebrew. But how do you translate that to English? Well, the only word we have that in English is, is demon. I mean, that's a cl as close as you can get without really studying the Hebrew. So don't just think a movie demon, and that's what God's talking about, uh, or Moses is talking about here. If you go back to Deuteronomy 29, for example, so a few pages back. Well, yeah, just, just here, I, um, let's four. look at verse 21, unless yeah, you're yeah. getting ready to no, get no, to that. Because they, they made me jealous mm -hmm. by what is no God. They angered me with their worthless idols. I'll make them envious by those who are not a people. I'll make <laughs> them angry by a nation that has no understanding. There's going to be some allusions to that. Um, like in, in 1 Corinthians 14 where he talks about, um, uh, about tongues and, and that's a sign um, <coughs> For unbelievers, like a sign of judgment, but there's also, um, like in First Corinthians ten, um, you know, where Paul's talking about food sacrifice to idols. He says, "Consider the people of of Israel, 
Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that a sacrifice offered to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to rouse the Lord's jealousy? So this is allusions to all of this, Hmm. you know, that, that... that come later on that that for Paul and and for Moses here, like the God, the little G mm. that's in rebellion is equal to idol, is equal to demon. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of different words. We won't get into that. But in, in Paul's language there in 1 Corinthians, that's what he's doing. He's saying those are equivalent. There's... there's Something behind the eye mm-hmm. of someone behind the eye. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. That'll be right. super important. All right. So anyway, um, and this part about I'll make them envious. Mm-hmm. Do you remember in the section of Romans uh, nine, ten to eleven, he says that salvations come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. Yeah. You know, th- there's that thing. Okay. About the 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 envious to. Uh, that, that God's doing now, but he, he has something for, for Israel to come, but yeah. for right now, um, we should be, by our relationship with the Creator, making Israel envious. Mm-hmm. We should, yeah. Uh, another one, if you're still in Deuteronomy 32, another verse I forgot yeah. at the very okay. end, 43, the very end of this sermon, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. So this is kind of Moses' prophecy looking forward, saying the heavens will again bow down. Um, he will, and all gods will bow down to him. Right? All the other lesser divine council people who had rebelled, we looked at, they will again, or they should be forced to bow down to him. Uh, another one, this is kind of all over Deuteronomy in more scattered places, but this is the most centralized commentary on earlier in Genesis. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, 19, for example, beware, God speaking to, or Moses speaking to Israel, be, beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, so heavenly beings, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all peoples under the whole heaven, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. So he's not saying, don't bow down to these other gods. They don't really actually exist. No, he's saying, these other divine beings do exist, and they're given authority, but don't get distracted and worship them. They were meant to point back to the chief god of all gods, the uncreated god. So don't get distracted by the sun and the moon and the stars, thinking these are worthy of worship. They were supposed to be conduits for worship to the Lord. And what he says is, God allotted those to other nations, meaning God gave them up. God says, fine, at, at Babel, essentially what Moses is saying happened is the Lord said, fine, you want to worship other gods so bad, go worship other gods. And so he scattered them, gave up on them, disinherited them, and put over them other Elohim, sons of God, lowercase g, created divine beings, hoping that they would rule well. And then it turns out they didn't. Right. So it's the Romans, I've heard it called the Romans 1 equivalent of the Old Testament. Romans 1 is... Sin has gotten so out of control, God says, fine, he will give you up to the lust of your heart, the destruction of the flesh. And he says, fine. And then before the final judgment, the Lord has given up 
on certain people because they're so given to idolatry and sin. It's a terrifying passage. The Lord puts his hands up and says, fine, before the judgment, have it your way. Judgments come early. And this is the Old Testament equivalent of that. God says, fine, you don't want to worship me as your God. I'll start new with someone else. So he creates a nation out of thin air. He draws Abraham um, and creates a new nation that will worship him and be his God alone. But the point of all of it then was to bring them back one day. Mm-hmm. Okay, God yeah, yeah, we'll get there, Felicia. given up on them forever. Yeah, and th- this is an important one. We keep going over because this one is like Psalm 82. It's so important. This is God in his divine counsel. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Right? God's not alone in heaven. Come, let, let us make man in our image. Let us go down to Babel. So he's holding counsel, holding judgment in his divine counsel, saying, how long will y'all, plural, hell, will y'all judge unjustly? How long will y'all show partiality to the wicked, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute? Rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hands of the wicked. I said, y'all are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any other prince. Arise, O God. Now, here's, the, here's what John was just saying. This is the goal of this, though. Is, Arise, O God. Judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. Now, that's a little bit different of a worldview than the world is the Lord's. Kind of, yes. In a grand sense, yes. He's the sole creator God. But within the world, the way he seems to have been working and allowed to Uh, He's allowed himself to work is assigning nations under the authority of other divine beings, wanting them to return glory to the Lord. He wants them to judge justly. Apparently God is so sovereign, he's perfectly okay doing that. He does it with us. I mean, that was the point all along with humans is God is so sovereign, he doesn't need to control every detail of the universe. He turns over to humans and says, I want you to rule on my behalf with free will well and with goodness and justice. Apparently that Adam idea... What he did with Adam was also a divine idea to these other lesser uh, divine beings. He's given authority as well, and they were supposed to rule well. I said, y'all are gods, but nevertheless, you'll die because you ruled unjustly. Yeah, this is what is, we mentioned it before, is quoted in John 10, 34, in that discussion Jesus is having with the Pharisees. Mm-hmm. It's Psalm 82 that's quoted. We will we'll take time to look at it now, but... Our favorite, Daniel 10. (laughs) So now this passage will finally make sense. Uh, Daniel 10. I mean, it's a weird book, Daniel is. Sorry, I'm kind of jumping around. But just to show you how this is very prevalent throughout the the word, but sometimes gets overshadowed because we're like, well, that was weird. And we kind of move on. Daniel has this encounter with a divine being. It's a classic funny Bible encounter. The scariest thing Daniel's ever seen in his life. And then the being goes, oh, don't be afraid, don't be fearful. And he's probably trembling, saying, what is happening to me? So this divine spiritual being, angel of sorts, coming to him, he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your words have been heard. I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, so we're not talking about humans. It's not the prince of Persia, the king of Persia. The, kingdom of, uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, Michael's not a human, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. And down in verse 20, Then he said, You know why I have come to you. 
But now I will return to fight against the king of per- the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth: there is none who contends by my side uh, against these except Michael, your prince. Who's your? Daniel, but Israel. I think he's talking collectively, not just personal Daniel's guardian angel. He's saying, your nation's prince, Michael the archangel. Right? So apparently alongside the Lord, he rules with Michael the archangel, the Elohim over Israel. I'm with the Lord, fighting with him. And what's scary about this is he withstood me 21 days. <laughs> it's like, that, that, did he put up a fight? Like I thought that the divine beings just snapped their fingers and they won the battle. He says, no, he withstood me 21 days. And I had to call for backup from Michael the archangel, and then we got it figured out. But even when we've driven out the prince of Persia, the, this prince, this Elohim over Greece will come. Now, this is spiritual warfare, right? Really weird passage, but you pull back the veil on what's going on, even with kingdoms and movements of empires, and it's not so simple as flesh and blood, which is Paul's point, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but this is our struggle that we can't see in Ephesians 6, but we're still a part of. Right? So he pulls back the veil and says, Here, here's the spiritual reality of what's going on with Persia, Greece, and Israel in the exile in Babylon. Right? Here's what's going on. We're trying. It's hard. We fought for 21 days against this guy and we needed backup. And then once we drive him out, another fallen Elohim is going to come in and fight too, the king of Greece. And apparently he was pretty strong as well. So stuff like this is, you know, you find this stuff in your Bible and you're just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> no, it's not that, that, that God couldn't just... Yeah. Snap his fingers, but that's not how God chose yeah, yeah. or chooses to do things sometimes, to get things done, either with his celestial beings mm-hmm. or his terrestrial beings. Yeah, and it's that's a hard bridge to cross of God can but chooses not to because he's so powerful. How powerful you are you if you can't choose to not do something? So people are bothered by, by this. Well, can't God just snap his finger and do it away? Yeah, but he didn't want to. Okay. He's so powerful. He can just say, I would rather this be a fight than just me stepping in and doing everything. Now that explains why Christ ascended and left. <laughs> it's because he wants us to fight on his behalf. And yeah, very and, strange. And, and so through the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see these, well, they sacrifice to Molech, mm-hmm. or they sacrifice to Chemosh, or, you know, the Philistines had Dagon, the <laughs> Moabites had Chemosh, the Ammonites had Molech. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so they, they, there's different head gods of these nations and that but Israel's God is Yahweh mm-hmm. so that's yeah, a lot of yeah. the contrast and I think sometimes we miss it when we read the little block letters L-O-R-D mm-hmm. and we're not really realizing that's a name that's mm-hmm. Israel's God's name that's that's the mm-hmm. tetragammon the, yeah the and he doesn't get that name Hashem the name yeah he doesn't get that name until he's ready to draw them out of Israel he's just called Elohim a very generic name it's like God but in the burning bush, when he's ready to pull them out of Israel, then Moses says, what is your name? Who will the God of Israel be? Yahweh. This he is speaks the covenant it, although name. Although it, it is read back into the yeah, text, yeah. <laughs> uh, back with, with, with Abram. Yeah. You know, it it yeah. is. So we wonder if that was Moses just wanting to confirm or what. Because <laughs> that's not the first place yeah. the tetragammon appears. But so anyway. the, what's cool about this is there's an actual geographical importance to this that it's not just I mean there's actual earthy stuff going on the actual borders of actual nations for some reason God allows <coughs> this to happen that they matter 
at least in the Old Testament, let's say that. For example, when Israel comes to take the promised land, they only take the promised land and not a square inch more. Because the point, it, it wasn't indiscriminate uh, empire expanding. The point was, these are my people, they don't have a land, and this is the sliver of land in the world I've chosen for my people. So if you're on this people, I think now they call it eminent domain, if your house is in the way of a highway, the government says, this is our house now, we'll pay you this much to leave, and you don't really have a choice. You know? And so it's kind of <coughs> eminent domain. This is God's territory, so you can become Israelite, you can leave, or generally speaking, this is very simplistic, but get out of the way, essentially. It's not this, hey, let's go just kill anyone in the Middle East. It's, this is the Lord's land. He doesn't take Egypt. He doesn't take Assyria. He doesn't go up northwest. He takes a sliver of land by the Mediterranean and says, and who happens to be there are the Canaanites. And he says, this is mine. But, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so that was part of the covenant is land, it's seed, and it's blessing. Yeah. It's all, it's all three. And and we read this before, Acts 17, where Paul's in Athens. But remember he said, From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. You see that? that Paul's recounting that, um, this story. Yeah, yeah. For example, uh, another, it's like all that to say the actual land does matter in the Old Testament. And 1 Samuel 26, there's a small story. David is driven out by Saul from the promised land. And he's mourning because he says, I've been driven away from the Lord's inheritance. Right? He's like disconnected. And he says, I've been driven away to serve other gods. Because in his mind, he can only serve the God of Israel in the promised land. It's very connected to the geography. Or 2 Kings 5, when this guy Naaman, the Syrian, so clearly not Israelite, comes and he's healed by Elisha the prophet and all this and he wants to worship the most high God he believes now the God of Israel but he says I gotta help my master into the temple he's old he needs help when I bring him to the temple to worship our God so can I bring a bunch of donkey loads of dirt from your place back to Syria so that I can spread it on the ground and worship the God of Israel so for some reason the actual land is connected to the worship of the Lord right so it's, it's so then it adds being exiled a new flavor to you're being driven away from the, the promised land of well, blessing. Or that they should return to celebrate yeah. the feast three times a year in, in a special place. Yeah. So, so then Abraham's mission is then in you all nations will be blessed. It's not that that's a, a sense how Christ parallels or is a type of Abraham is that Abraham wasn't just this is the means of us being personally individually saved. It's a national level of all nations will be blessed through Abraham. And by that, he means through the seed of Abraham, Israel. Now, of course, we would understand that as through Israel comes the Messiah. And in the Messiah, all nations can be blessed, Jew or Gentile, which is everybody. So it, but it's a lot bigger than just individuals. It's whole nations working. It's the salvation of the world. And, of course, the updated promise of Abraham is the world, the new creation itself. God, that's, a, that's summer class, but God has not given up on the physical world, the actual dirt, material land. The new creation is coming when the whole world will be renewed. And on the earth will be resurrected and, and transformed, right? So it's, that's, he's the ultimate Abraham. Abraham is a little sliver of land in the Middle East. But then second Abraham comes and he will renew the entire creation in all nations, fulfilling Abraham's covenant. Uh, that's the question about Daniel 10 again? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. 
Let's see. Kind of breathe, so, was, <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the in verse thirteen, the prince, and then it's also talking about kings. Yeah. Prince for sure is divine. King may be the actual king. Divine meaning spiritual. Not spiritual, spiritual, yeah. Okay, right. And so, because he says the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and then Prince Michael. So we know Mike. We all know Michael's an archangel. He's not, you know, an actual king like David. So. Left there with the kings of Persia. I'm not sure if the kings of Persia. What would kings be? I think I th- I'm not actually sure. It's a good question. I think kings may be actual human kings. But that idea of prince, I think, is meaning the spiritual authorities. Yeah, I'd have to look back at the yeah. exact use. But, yeah, this is contrasting princes in yeah. the heavenly That's realms. Yeah. And then also, could you speak to this um, idea that I know some religions feel like Jesus is Michael? Like, uh, maybe for yeah. Uh, Michael is the prince for the good guys, so it must be Jesus yeah. is the prince. I mean, they're, they're, it's like saying Abraham is Jesus. Or Moses is Jesus. Kind of the same thing they're doing where Michael's clearly a type of Christ, the leader, supernatural protector and leader of his people who speaks on his own behalf as if he's God himself like Michael does. But then to draw an equal sign to Michael is therefore Jesus is like, I think it, and that may be Jehovah's Witness, maybe Mormons. I think Jehovah's Witness thinks Michael is Christ. Yeah, I'd, yeah. yeah, I'd have to look at that. But I think you're right. That's all that he does. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, then Christ, so then to pull it forward to Christ's ministry, again, 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 I always want to go through this because we, all of this is kind of the broader question of who is Christ and what was his ministry. And we, we hone in on personal individual salvation because we're Western individualists, but the Bible is largely often very unconcerned with our own personal salvation. Of course, that's the heart of it. But the broader scope of all of this, we've even seen in Abraham, is the nations, the nations, the nations, or the entire world being redeemed in Christ. Or this spiritual warfare that goes on, which I'm, I'm really interested in, not just for, uh, for fun, but uh, to, to kind of show the crosses, we said last week, the dethronement of these gods. They were put there, and for some reason, God doesn't just... So he put these gods over the nations, wants them to give worship to the Most High God, Himself, the Lord, but they accept worship for themselves... And God doesn't take their authority away by force. He comes, well, he doesn't, they're not going to willingly give it back. Let's say that. So then he comes to take it. And that's what Christ's ministry is. He doesn't, he's going to take it by force, in a sense. He, because they won't willingly give it back. So then you get the gates of Hades. He goes to the heart of the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. And, and the gate, I mean, a gate is defensive. <laughs> Not the gates of Hades won't prevail against the church, meaning the gates are defensive. Right. So the one giving the beating is the church. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is making me think of, of some of Ephesians, too, when we talk about this Israel and the nations, because, you know, this is in chapter 2. He says, you are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by, by those who call themselves a circumcision. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. He is our peace. He's made the two one. He's destroyed the barrier by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And then he goes on... 
you know, he's he said all these things that we're talking about here. That back in chapter one, that power is like the working of his mighty strength he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age but also in the age to come. You see this this language that he's talking about has to do with with all of this, and then one other. Um, uh, I'll, I'll find it here, where he says this this making of the church one. Okay, that, <laughs> here it goes. Um, this is in chapter three. He says. Um, his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he, he's just saying that this idea, uh, this mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of one body and shares together in this promise. So he's just saying that this reunion, this coming together of Gentile and Jew and Israel, the Israel and the nations, is a statement not just for humans, but for all the God, all the divine beings, you know, that that his intent is to make them one. And that is a like you see, you know, you yeah, see what yeah. I've done. You know, yeah. I I've I'm reconciling Everything mm, yeah. in heaven and on earth. I'm reckon, you know, in Jesus, his what Jesus is doing in Paul's mind here is much bigger than just saving us from our sins and giving us freedom from, um, you know, fear of death. Yes, all of that is wonderful, but it's 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 big. Mm -hmm. It's big. It's reversing all of these yeah. rebellions, and and it's yeah. going to even change the earth ultimately you know there was yeah. a pre-flood earth and a post-flood earth and there's going to be um, changed over by fire and that he's through Jesus it's all changing yeah. it's all going back to good yeah I guess the the part you have to get to eventually the most clear fulfillment or reversal of Genesis 10 and 11 because we did the reversal of Eden, we did the reversal of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Now the reversal of this is a little bit more obvious at Pentecost when... Now Pentecost, remember, Pentecost is Jews from every nation. It's not people from every nation. It says, now Jews from every nation were gathered. Uh, in verse 5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews from every nation. But before that in 2, you get the sound of a mighty rushing wind filled the entire house where they were sitting, divided tongues of fire. Now that word divided is from Deuteronomy 32. Divided tongues of fire in them appeared, rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it's like literally the reversal of Babel. There were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at the sound the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, undoing what Genesis 11 was. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these speaking Galileans? Uh, are, not all the, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Then you get the Acts 2 table of nations. But it's updated and more generic and expanded, but still kind of going from east to west, like the table of nations in Genesis 10. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia. 
And then in verse 11, Jews and proselytes. So that's Jews and then, uh, you know, <laughs> people have converted to Judaism. And they ask in the end, all these Jews, and they say, what does this mean? So they're saying, what does it mean now that Babel's been reversed, right? This is a clear reversal of Babel. What does this mean? Peter addresses the crowd and gives a sermon saying, guys, you know what this means. And he starts quoting uh, Joel 2. I hope I there. Yeah, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, Address them, men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let it be known to you, give ear to my words. These people who are not, are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So they say, what does this mean? He says, haven't you read Joel? Joel says, in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And then he goes on with his sermon from there. But that, he quotes from Joel 2. Now, the next passage in Joel 2, it's actually Joel 3, but of course they didn't have chapter divisions. There's, there's no chapter 2 in the Hebrew Bible of Joel. And in chapter 3, it's just Joel. The next section of 3 says, For behold, in those days of that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations. So he quotes from Joel and stops a verse short in chapter of Joel 3.1 that he expects you to know. That's 3.1 and 2 I just read. And the point of the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh was to restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem and to gather the nations. So similar to Babel, it wasn't about the language as much. The point was this is about nations as a whole coming together. Now that's kind of a starting point for Acts as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Fulfilling what Christ said, all authority on earth has been given to me, so go make disciples of all nations, now that you can. <laughs> yeah, they, and they clearly didn't get it right at first, you know, because it, it was just the Jews, and it takes you know, a, a supernatural event to go to Samaria, it takes another supernatural event to go to Cornelius' household, but mm. God's showing he's going to do that and then when they have the council in Acts 15 to meet together uh, James gets up and he quotes uh, I think it's Amos mm. chapter 9 which is again about the Gentiles mm. coming in and about rebuilding David's fallen tent which hopefully we'll have time to get to because that is a great little interlude between the tabernacle of Moses or the tent of Moses and the temple uh, of Solomon yeah so you know, this, this is kind of introductory to all this, but you get to Revelation is kind of the, f the glimpse into the future, but also present of what's going on. And it's the, the saints who have triumphed in dying in their faith are now reigning over creation with the Lord. And so these messianic promises of Psalm 2, uh, this is a passage we didn't look at, that the Messiah will rule with a rod of iron over all the nations. He will inherit all the nations, the Messiah. He says in Revelation 2, to those who conquer till the end, I will give you a rod of iron to rule the nations. So there's a weird sense, and this is kind of a rabbit hole, that we are then brought into the divine council to rule with God. Because if we're in Christ, who is the Son of God, who presides over the divine council now, and if we're in Christ, we rule with Christ over the divine council. So that then Paul can say, don't you know that y'all will judge angels? Because you'll be on the divine council now. Now that all this to explain one line out of Paul, because this is all in Paul's Jewish mind from his Hebrew Bible 
so that he can say, don't you know, you will judge angels, these heavenly beings. <laughs> and, that, and that's part of the Hebrew writer saying, made a little lower than the angels, yeah. but now elevated mm. above, and he calls Jesus, and he calls us brothers, yeah. because we are destined for the same thing. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Yeah, and I, I guess one final thing we can end here is for, for self-study is Christ's favorite title for himself, Son of Man, and you just got to, the more and more I read it, the heart of the understanding of the Hebrew Bible in Christ's ministry is Daniel 7, the Son of Man scene, where you have the Ancient of Days presiding over his divine counsel. He opens the books for judgment to rule, and there are thrones all around him. And then one who is a man comes and sits among the divine counsel with the Ancient of Days. And to him is given nations and power and a kingdom that will never end in rule and authority. That is, <laughs> we'll go to that eventually, that is, that is like a glimpse into the divine council where Christ takes his seat after the beast has been defeated and as a man now presides in the divine council as the God-man, but yeah, pretty yeah. cool, cool stuff. So, yeah. anyway. Any wanna... thoughts, comments? After he ascends out of the lion's den. Yeah, whoa. Yeah, that's a parallel. Yeah, Daniel and the lion's den, what she's saying is Daniel and the lion's den is a parallel story to Daniel 7 where they're with the beasts and then he ascends to rule the kingdom with Nebuchadnezzar, son of man story that a beast is defeated, he ascends to rule with Ancient of Days we'll get there, that's a really really yeah, fun Daniel, one though I, I wanted to add to um, what you were talking about earlier about the, uh, why God didn't zap them <laughs> uh, you know with, with all the land and all that stuff when you, back there when you were talking I just didn't get a chance to say anything but um, there's also um, Exodus 23:29 and Deuteronomy um, 7:22, and they both say, "But I will not drive them out in a single year, because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. <laughs> little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land." And then Deuteronomy 7 says, "The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. Mm. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all." Yeah. Very practical. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like that. Yeah. Good. One. Ver- there's, I mean, there's all throughout the Gospels. You see this one final, really small one is John 12. Now the ruler of this world is cast out, and I will lift up and draw all nations or all people to myself. It's kind of a condensed one-verse summary of what Christ came to do: cast out the ruler of this world, set himself up to draw all people.